All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Growing Down. And today we are joined by uh, Ashby Goodrum and Brad Kirshner. So Ashby works as an advanced practice nurse in primary and maternity care settings with significant experience as a bedside nurse and psychopomp in, in midwifery. Some of their research and clinical interests include gender-affirming care, uh, birth equity, palliative care, cultural trauma, and healing-centered engagement and transformative justice. Ashby lives in Portland, Oregon, which rests on traditional village sites of multiple indigenous tribes, such as the Multnomah, Clackamas, and Tualatin, who are among the land's first human caretakers. So uh, welcome to you, Ashby. Great to have you uh, join us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. And we are also joined here uh, by friend of the show, Brad Krishner. Brad is a school teacher and independent scholar and author of Understanding Educational Complexity, Integrating Practices and Perspectives for 21st Century Leadership. His research, teaching, and writing cover a wide range of interdependent topics, including education, leadership, parenting, race, technology, metamodernism, integral theory, meditation, complexity, and developmental psychology. You can learn more about his work and access recordings of his guided meditations on Patreon. So Brad, it's great to have you uh, with us as well. Thanks, Ryan. So, wow, yeah. So today we have uh, quite a big and juicy uh, topic, everyone's favorite topic, <laughs> um, you know, race, the culture wars. We were, we were debating about what to, what to title this episode uh, before we started recording. And maybe, uh, maybe to begin with, um, whoever wants to start just by talking about what brings you to this conversation, what, what is some of your, the, the inspirational and, and agitating factors that, that has uh, interested you in joining us today to talk about such an important issue. Yeah, well, Ashby, if it's all right with you, maybe I could give a little summary of what sort of brought us here together. Yeah. Yes, um, please go ahead. Because Ashby and I are, are friends. We've known each other for, I think, 15 years or so. Um, and I, not so long ago, gave a talk um, for a series called The Future Faces of Spirit. And in that talk that I gave, I actually spent a good 30, 40 minutes sort of unpacking um, a part of what my thinking is around race and trying to really set the topic of race and racism, anti-racism in a broader context and the context of, of the talk overall is really thinking about how we are growing and evolving as a species, as humanity, right? So it's sort of trying to lay out a vision for where I think we're at and kind of where I think we need to go. And Ashby, I think if I got this straight, he listened to that because I typically share my stuff with him. Um, so, you know, he was nice enough to listen to it and really opened up a dialogue. And he and I kind of had an ongoing dialogue um, and he's just asked so many thoughtful questions and gave me a chance to really reflect on what I had already been trying to articulate. Um, and I just loved, I, I think we both just really loved and appreciated the dialogue that we had um, and just going into really um, important areas of the topic that I don't think, that I don't see really surface very often in public discourse. And so part of my reflection through engagement with him was just feeling like, wow, I wish we could kind of share this conversation. Um, and I think that may have been how I brought it to you, Ryan, uh, uh, initially. And so, so part of my intention is really to continue that conversation and to really surface and make more public some of the nuances and some of the contextualizations 
and some of the reflections that we were bringing to the conversation beyond just whatever the popular mimetic sort of um, narratives that we're all kind of getting exposed and overexposed to. Yeah, and I, I feel like that uh, accurately sum summarizes how we um, emerge th in this conversation and this, I'm deeply interested in being part of the healing that needs to take place. Um, we've seen quite a bit of, um, I want to say, awakening, or maybe it's just a, a reckoning that people in this country, the United States, have been um, involved in in the past, what is it, nine, nine months? But it's been going on for a long time, but it's been concentrated and amplified. And um, I, I'm very much looking forward to doing my part to help see other people um, where they're coming from, understand them, and have my views also understood as well, because I think that alone is something that is restorative. So that's why I'm interested in this conversation about the genealogy of racism and what we can do to unlearn it. Yeah, excellent, wonderful. And just for some background information, Brad and Ashby and I have had a, quite the uh, conversation over email and have compiled a Word doc of all of our thoughts on the subject, which has become quite a lengthy document worthy of an entire podcast series of its own. So we'll see what we can uh, dig into today. Um, so yeah, I mean, wh where should we start? I mean, there, there are so many, you know, jumping off points and, and um, in orbit around this whole topic. So any, anything salient to jump out at you guys that, we, that can be a starting point here? Well, I would I would highlight one one word that Ashby just said, which is healing, and and I would say that really is our shared intention. And part of my part of my desire and intention is to really help to um, see and clarify what different perspectives are in the racial conversation. So, partly it's an educational move of you know identifying different structures or forms or narratives. So looking at, um, you know, like there's there's lots of big hyper objects out there, right? Like wokeness, right? Or anti-racism and racism and really clarifying what these different perspectives are, but always with the intention to understand how do we hold them all? How do we have solidarity with these different perspectives? So, so part of the conversation is clarifying, like what is the view of, 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 this, of the overall woke and wokeness movement, right? Like, what is that really all about? What constitutes that? Like, what, why is how to be an anti-racist and white fragility, like, why are they so popular, right? Like, so what is the meaning and the goodness and the truth there? And like, how do we hold that? But also part of what my journey has been is really hearing other voices too, and other reasonable and intelligent and thoughtful voices who are critical of some of the things that those texts and those people are saying and really looking at, okay, but what's, what are the problems and the shortcomings and, and the, and the partial aspects of those perspectives, right? And how do we also hold these other also anti-racist perspectives, but that are in some ways also anti-woke and trying to actually be more post-racial and like, how do we have solidarity with, with, with those perspectives, right? So there's lots of different voices in the conversation. And also it really matters what your context is. So it's like, if you're talking to a white nationalist, 
like that's a very different kind of conversation, right? And, and it's hard to have all the conversations simultaneously. So I just want to name two. Part of my focus is in the context of thinking about sort of progressive, left, liberal, woke, anti-racist culture. Like part of my intention is having a conversation with that culture, with that sort of um, mimetic structure or that, that sort of popular narrative and helping you know, millions of people who are in that conversation and who are kind of resonating with that anti-racist movement, helping them to hear some of these other voices, helping them to really think a little bit more critically and carefully about what some of the implications and potential downsides of that sort of anti-racist movement are in service of some sort of developmental or growth-oriented unfolding and in service of healing, right? Because I think if, if we're not actually creating containers and conversations where people can actually feel heard and validated um, and we're not moving toward healing, then, then we're sort of perpetuating the problem in, in some way. So I'm not sure if that was helpful, but that, that's just part of more, more of what the context is of like, how do we look at um, holding different parts of the conversation and then looking at how do we help the anti-racist movement become more self-critical so that they can actually be more effective. Yeah, and I, I think that what I am most passionate about is figuring out where it is we came from, exactly where we came from, so we can know how to go forward together and grappling with all the discomfort and pain and unrecognized grief, frankly, that is um, obstructing growth. So, so Maya Angelou said, you know, no man can know where he is going unless he knows exactly where he has been and exactly he arrived at his present place. And I think that um, resonates with what we're talking about here. And, you know, my background is in healthcare. I'm a, I have extensive experience in nursing and in midwifery, and we approach things as a, uh, a clinical problem if it has any chance of having a reasonable answer that we can then come to some remedy for. And with the discussion of racism and the attendant race and other factors, we want to make sure that we get the diagnosis right. Um, and, and because if we don't, we aren't actually going to be able to heal properly. It'll just keep recurring. So maybe a good angle from here would be to explore how your approach, your analysis in terms of how are you approaching this? Obviously, integral theory is factoring in here. Developmental perspective is factoring in here. So, so maybe we can kind of explore this domain a little bit and how that has helped navigate these different polarities and tensions within the movement. Um, and then maybe also, I would love to hear actually, you know, what feedback has been like. Like, has it been effective? Have you been able to? Uh, um, enact a form of mimetic mediation between these different move, uh, aspects of the movement um, in searching for greater resilience and greater effectiveness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, just to jump on that last question, I think people are really ready to, to, to um, question some of the things that we're questioning. And I think there are a number of voices out there now that are really helping to expand the conversation. So I point to people like Bio Komalafe, Aisha Kanbi, Chloe Valderi, Greg Thomas. Like there are a lot of different people out there who are just 
having more nuanced conversations. And I feel like part of my intention is to bring people in the anti-racist space who are only reading people like Kendi and D'Angelo to kind of just expose them to more of those conversations. Frankly, part of the issue is 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 interest though and 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 just and just time and energy and capacity to really wholeheartedly be in the conversation um and that's actually part of part of the dynamic too that i tried to point out in my talk and that is kind of a hard thing to talk about but seeing how um dynamics play out in different groups and understanding that one of the elements of understanding human equality like one of the understanding of really acknowledging and accepting that we are equal in deep ways as human beings is seeing the ways that we manifest group dynamics and group think and also pathology, right? So like every social group, every so-called race, every culture has different forms of very um, common ways of um, solidifying around certain mimetic structures and certain thoughts and certain ideas, and then having in-group, out-group dynamics. So one thing that's interesting to see is how those same dynamics inevitably form in anti-racist spaces, right? So it's like, like any group, no matter how self-righteous, is going to be manifesting some form of just typical human pathology and like, and just patterns, right? And like habits. So being able to acknowledge that and have the humility to sort of see how, you know, your critique of other people who are maybe easier to critique because in some ways they have more immature versions of being racist or being nationalist or being ethnocentric or whatever. It's really easy to critique that, but we always have to be self-reflective and have humility to see that some of those same psychological and social patterns also manifest in our in-group of progressive sort of righteous people who are trying to make the world a better place. Um, so, so, so that's one thing that, and, but that piece is part of this bigger conversation and that's hard for people to hear. So I think that, you know, just like we see pushback from a lot of white people who maybe don't want to have conversations of race, don't want to have conversations about white supremacy, right? And like sort of the notion of white fragility as it applies to white people who don't want to talk about race and racism, it also applies to people of all races and colors as soon as the topic becomes their own in-group, right? So it's just, it's just generally hard to have that kind of self-critical self-reflection, whatever your identity is. Um, so it's inevitably a very difficult conversation to have. It's inevitably very difficult to kind of push progressives to think about the problems of anti-racist groupthink. But the, 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 the beautiful insight is some of the things that we need to see happening there are the similar to the things that they're pointing to that other people are doing. They just haven't owned them for themselves. And that's a big part of the whole process is everyone being able to see that the things that they are judgmental about and critical about out there and other people are embedded in their own psychology and their own just their own humanness right and it's like if you if each individual hasn't come to terms with that and isn't continually trying to come to terms with that in some meaningful degree they're not going to be able to have a meaningful and healing conversation about, about race or, or much anything else
Yeah, that is um, you know, a beautiful reflection. And I, I think that we also have to remember that it's not necessarily about everyone coming to you know, the same process or understanding. There has to be some um, level of consensus for cultural and social change to happen because there are actual real harms happening because of these made up constructs that need to be addressed in as soon as possible. And I don't know that we can actually wait for everybody to get to a place where they're um, ready and willing to do the work personally to um, allow for justice on a social scale. But you know, it's at, that's not saying that we shouldn't try. It's just that we, we I don't think that, I think time is of the essence and we have to do, do what we can with what we have and the best knowledge we have available. And so there are all of the systems of knowledge that we have, um, all of the ideologies, all of the responses are um, imperfect, impartial, as we alluded to earlier. Um, and that does not mean that we can't still leverage some of the tools and insights of those, such as anti-racism's, um, you know, pretty poignant and piercing observations about overlapping systems of oppression, um, not just racism and how they interact um, and lead to true actual violence in some cases and um, social violence in other cases, such as poverty. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Ashby, as you were speaking, I was thinking about how it would be uh, interesting if you could elaborate a little bit about your uh, experience in the medical field, applying some of these concepts practically, and what have you found to be successful um, in terms of your, your approach dealing with clients or patients in promoting healing or uh, insight or justice or transformation to some of these individuals and communities that you're working with and, and understanding also the historical part and what's the significance or importance of understanding the historical factor and the systemic structural factor that we talked about over email the, that could be helpful for um, leading to really make some practical change in this area. Absolutely. So one of the, the key principles in um, American healthcare that is an offshoot of something called cultural competency um, is something called cultural humility. When it's this idea that the practitioner, the healthcare team needs to be aware of their own biases, their own worldviews, and how that can, um, can impact the care that they're delivering and how they are able to meet or not meet their patients uh, and their families. Uh, in healthcare, I like to think of it as a healing facilitating uh, process because we don't actually heal people, the body heals itself. And to be able to do that, we need to um, accompany those, the, the people that we are helping, the people that we are serving. It is in that accompaniment that healing can begin to happen because people feel like they're, they're, they're understood that they're the factors, the multiple factors that have impacted their life, whether it's their socioeconomic class, their race, their gender, their religion, um, their family culture, because every family has its own subculture. Um, all of those things can, can inform what it means for that person to be healthy and what their health goals are. And as a clinician, it is my job to help people to the best of my ability meet their health goals. And, and so there's this idea of structural competency, um, which is adjacent to, to cultural humility, where we try to keep an eye on 
the, the various um, elements that lead to, to a person's identity um, and their, their health vulnerability that is shaped by that identity in some cases. Um, so for example, if we have a, a pregnant woman who is identified as black in America, we know because of her, uh, how she is raised um, and her pregnancy status, that she is at more risk of having a poor health outcome during pregnancy and uh, birth. And that cannot be accounted for by other uh, factors such as class, because even when we control for class, uh, black women are at an increased risk of dying during childbirth or immediately after from complications such as preeclampsia. And their children are, at, their babies are at increased risk of dying uh, before birth or immediately after as well. And, you know, being cognizant and aware of that and, uh, and, and being open about that recognition um, is a way of building trust because it, it shows that we know what people's, or we're trying to understand what people's vulnerabilities are so we can recognize our own, so we can help meet them where they are. Um, so th does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. That was, that was a great example. Um, and it makes me it makes me think too that when whenever in any field that we're in, right, we're bringing a broader contextual approach. We're zooming out a little bit. We're seeing the surrounding systems and structures and societal, cultural, political, economic influences that all crisscross and imbricate over each other to really shape someone's experience and to um, give us some particular insight on how to build a better relationship with them or help them in a way that's more in tune with some of these other issues that could be invisible to the untrained eye who doesn't necessarily see these larger systemic factors. I guess, I guess my, this leads to another question, which is how does someone, I guess this is kind of transitioning the conversation to the, to a little bit of the more critique part of it too, is how do we really understand these systemic and structural factors and their impact on things like race and identity without inadvertently essentializing race, or as um, Chloe Valdray talks about in one of her, her guidelines, right? It's looking at people as human beings and not political abstractions or entities. So how can we hold that balance of seeing the larger systemic picture and sociological trends that tend to inform people of certain ethnicities without consolidating that into kind of primitive racial essentialism that could backfire and end up creating more division or identitarian tribalism? Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And I, I think Ryan, you know, for us too, for part of having an, a frame that's informed by integral theory or, or metamodernism, it, it really helps. And part of what we come up against here is the complexity and the capacity that's required to actually do that. And there are developmental implications for that. So it's like part of what we need to bring together is how, how trauma um, historical trauma, complex trauma, developmental trauma impacts the growth process, right? And like what part of like racialized trauma is part of that picture of overall healthy human development and functioning. And then that also relates to just development in general and how we understand the sort of trajectory that we're on as humans and our capacities for doing really difficult things like holding both and perspectives, right? And not reducing reality to one thing so like so like it might be helpful for instance to go through just really schematically like there are different sort of cross-cultural cross-racial 
you know, structures or like perspective taking on, on things like the relationship between individuals and collectives, right? And like, what would it really mean to move through those stages where, for instance, in the model of hierarchical complexity, right? You move through stages from like from abstract to formal to systematic to metasystematic thinking, right? And these map on somewhat to just in spiral dynamics, you can think of like blue traditional to orange modern to green postmodern. You know, in Keegan, you have, you know, the socialized mind and the self-authoring mind and the self-transforming mind. Like there's all these different developmental frameworks. And for me, the question that you're asking really is a developmental capacity. So it's partly the question of how do we get people to the place where they can understand the influences of systemic racism, the influences of sort of social structures and socialization, but not reduce reality to that and still also be holding like individual uniqueness and not conflating the experiences of different people just based on certain markers, right? Because different people with dark colored skin have still have very different experiences and very different degrees of trauma based on their actual individual experiences. And the same thing goes to people of all phenotypes and races. So for instance, like as we're moving through those stages of just cognition and understanding, um, part of what we're seeing is more and more people moving into a more systematic understanding, or at least trying to move into a systematic understanding. And we have cultural codes being formed that sort of use um, the language of systems and the language of like understanding socialization to help explain human reality, right? So it's like, we're trying to understand, you know, how do we coordinate different influences into seeing a system of influence um, whether it be economics or systemic racism or understanding everything in terms of like Darwinian evolution. Like if you have some system of thought and then you use that to interpret reality, that is a capacity that people can sort of grow into. And systemic racism is like one system for understanding and interpreting social reality, right? But uh, what we really need, and I think the real answer to your question is that we actually need more people to be able to have a metasystematic perspective on things, meaning you see different systems of explanation in relationship to each other, and you don't reduce the whole to any one of them, right? So like to really understand the complexity of the individual, you'd have to understand um, biology, you have to understand cognitive science, you have to understand how they're influenced by like technology and economics, you'd have to understand systemic racism, you'd have to understand developmental psychology, right? You have to understand how they've been influenced in their family systems dynamics. It's like there's so many holes that we're a part of. There's so many overlapping contexts. So one of the, so at, at an abstract, but somewhat explanatory level, one of the issues with anti-racism, one of the issues with wokeness, one of the issues with the emphasis on systemic racism is it's the attempt to sort of have a systematic perspective and reduce all of social reality to this one sort of explanatory structure when actually we can affirm everything in that explanation potentially we could affirm all of the content that's being explicated through a description of systemic racism but that's still just one piece of the puzzle. So we can't reduce social reality to that. We can't reduce any person's sacred uniqueness and individuality and experience 
and phenomenology of just living and being in the world, you can't reduce them to that. It's just one piece of a much bigger puzzle. But I acknowledge, and we have to acknowledge that's, it's hard. It, like it's hard to really hold these things in conversation and to even be informed by specialists in all those fields to even have some content from different fields that we can even integrate together. And not only that, but just because people are using the language that speaks to a systematic understanding doesn't even mean that they even have actually the capacity to be generating that themselves. They could also just be mimicking the language of other people. So it's a really complicated developmental question. But the more that we can acknowledge that and sketch that out, I think the better sense we have of really what we're up against um, and why all the more we need to focus on the relationships like Ashby's talking about, the thing that stands out to me is it's an embodied relationship between a super thoughtful, conscious individual like Ashby with a person who's in a particular positionality and context. And then, but relating to that person, not as a person who's been labeled as a black woman who's at risk and who's a potential victim, but as a whole person who, for whom that's just one part of their, of their story. And the more we can kind of be in that, those embodied healing relationships, the more I think we can actually cut through some of the problems we face when we're stuck with trying to upgrade people's um, uh, complexity of explanation and understanding, right? Because you can only go so far with, with, with that for, for a lot of people. Sorry, I hope that made sense. That was a lot. Can I jump onto that? I, I, I like the idea of having um, a metasystematic approach um, because that's, you know, actually what the goal of these um, fields such as, you know, feminism or, or schools of thought, feminism or anti-racism, they do actually make room for multiple different overlapping types of oppression, not just specific to gender in the case of feminism or racism in the case of anti-racism, but also how it intersects with disability and disability status or nationality and age and class, all of them, because they're not actually like, they're not separable. They, they happen concurrently. Um, and, and when people get stuck on one of those or, or they hyper-focus on one of them, it, it is at the expense of the others and, and also seeing the other dimensions of humanity of, for a, an individual or a collective. And so they, that leads me to believe that perhaps the problem is that something like racism and you know, sexism and all the other isms that have to do with domination and oppression are actually learning and developmental disorders, um, especially if we look at spiral dynamics, because they, they make sense at the specific mean where they are, right? Like if, if you're in a, a, a mindset where you're afraid of people who are perceived as other, and you want to protect your own. So the people who look like you, the people who live in your, your neighborhood, that live in your, your nation, it would make sense to have those type of thoughts. But it only goes up to, a, it's only useful to a certain point. And so we have to try to encourage, invite people to, to broaden their perspectives and be open to, to new learning and unlearning some old, habits of mind that are no longer useful. Um, and, and so that, so a racism, for example, as this, this insidious force um, could actually be considered uh, an addiction. 
especially if we understand um, addiction as this uh, phenomenon of compulsively thinking and behaving in ways that are harmful despite the consequences. Um, I mean, no one, I think very few people think that racism is actually um, helpful and good, and yet our entire society is embedded in it. And the same is true of things like classism and um, ableism, which is a, a parallel to racism, but has to do with disability. But we are all conditioned to do it by virtue of being born into a society where these, um, th th these ideas, these ideologies are mapped onto us. Like it's a matrix of <laughs> oppression, among other things. Um, so I think if we, if we approach it that way, addiction is not something where so, it just happens to people and there's no reason for it. Um, it, it, it has a history, usually based in trauma. Um, and people do have choices once they are given options. Just because someone is living with an addiction doesn't mean that they, can, they can't choose behaviors that aren't serving that addiction. You, you certainly can, but you first have to be aware of the fact that the addiction is uh, causing neurobiological changes and doing that hard, very uncomfortable work of disentangling one's mind from that, that track, that, that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, can I just build on that a little bit? Because what Ashby said about addiction, I think is really provoking and insightful. And it, it connects with um, one of the things that I've been reading and thinking about is this notion of racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields. And, and they talk about race and racism. Um, you know, they really try to describe it as a social practice. Like it's something that we're doing, right? It's, and, and, and part of the thing that they want to help us understand is that, um, you know, we've sort of transformed, the, you know, the act of a subject, like the act of racism into this attribute of race. So it's like racism is this active thing that had a, 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 a genealogy. It formed, you know, historically for particular and insidious and terrible reasons of exploitation um, and, 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 and violence basically and subjugation um, for economic reasons. And, and, and there's this way in which over time, you know, we continue to construct race and racism, but they really, go together and, and, and sort of like there's just this way in which we've taken race to be this objective fact but really it's the active activity perpetually of racializing each other that is still a form of racism you know and and thinking of it as a social construction you know they make the point that we can call it a social construction but we're not really understanding what kind of construction it is you know it's like there's different kinds of social construction like the united states of america is a social construction, right? But it's different, you know, like race and like racism is more like the social construction of murder or genocide. Like genocide is a social construction, but it's a, it's a crime against humanity and it's an activity that we're actively doing. And, but, but race is, is, is a different kind of construction than racism. Race is sort of like the evil eye, you know? And she makes this interesting analogy, I'm sorry, they make this interesting analogy to witchcraft where it's like, if you go to a society that believes in witchcraft, um, it's, it's taken as a given, like you can't explain it away. Like there's no way to convince people it doesn't exist because 
the way it almost like an addiction, like the way that they construct their reality fits with this ideology. Um, and, and there's a way in which like the scientific force of saying, oh, well, we have scientific evidence saying that, you know, witchcraft is not the best explanation for these phenomena. Well, we can do a very similar thing with race where science is really clear that race does not exist, but we yet still actively are constructing it as a society, even in the face of sort of a more scientific view. So I think having that construct aware perspective on things and sort of helping people to see how they are actively racializing each other and racing each other. Um, again, it's sort of a high capacity in terms of being construct aware and being aware of how you are constructing reality, like calling something a social construct, but then still acting like it's just the way things are, is the, 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 there's a real tension there. And there should be some cognitive dissonance there for people, because to really see that you, we are constructing it means that we have freedom and agency in whether or not we want to continue constructing people racially. And I think that's a very liberating and powerful question that I would love to see people really consider more seriously in terms of can we be oriented toward the potential for not actively and addictively racing and racializing each other anymore? And is that actually still the end game? It seemed like during the civil rights movement, maybe it was, and there's a way in which it's another sort of aspect of the anti-racist movement now where it's sort of like there's a lot of deconstruction, there's a lot of critique, but there's not a lot of clarity in terms of the goal or the end game. Um, you know, so maybe we have to unpack a little bit about like what's the difference between being colorblind and denying the impacts of the social construction of race versus still affirming the potential for humanity that's not actively and addictively racializing themselves. Well, and, and therein lies the problem, right? Like, so it's this idea that people are addicted. And so um, science journalist Maya Solovitz has popularized the idea of addiction as a learning disability or disorder, excuse me. And when people are addicted to something, whether it's a, um, a, a way of thinking, a way of engaging in the world, a way of alleviating their pain and suffering, it is incredibly difficult for folks not to be addicted or to, to, to recover from that. Um, and I don't want to minimize, minimize the, the work of, of, of recovery from addiction because you know, if we accept that our, we are individually and socially addicted to something like racism, just think of the the amount of effort and skill it will take to try to work through that addiction. Um, and I, I also would like to, to just explore and, and operationalize the ideas of, of uh, helping people through addiction and what the role of harm reduction would be. Because you, Brad, you were asking, you know, what's the end game? I don't know that the end game is has anything sp specifically to do with race itself. I think the end game might have to be ending a world where oppression and domination are givens and acceptable. Um, race is one of those ways that people are oppressed and dominated, um, but it's not the only one. Um, violence happens primarily in the, in the space where oppression and dominant systems are allowed to thrive. Um, so I, I would just like to, to, to give attention to the fact that, you know, whatever we're up against, it is 
it's not going to happen quickly. And I think we should actually think about harm reduction as an actual approach um, because there is no magic wand. Um, is that is harm reduction something we have time to talk a bit about in this podcast? Sure. Yeah, by all means. Okay. Um, so there are several principles of harm reduction that are um, outlined on the National Harm Reduction um, website, Coalition's website, and they are specific to substance use disorder. However, you could easily replace um, substance use disorder with with racism and any of the other um, isms. But the, one of the first principles is acknowledging that it exists um, and not, not being willfully ignorant to the fact that racism, whether people intend for it to happen or not, is a thing that's happening and is a thing that we are all um, implicated in. Like it is, it is not a deliberate thing for the vast majority. Yes, there are rare exceptions where there are, you know, there are virulent white supremacists, for example, and that are anti-black, anti-Semitic, et cetera. But that is not most people, I don't think. Um, but a lot of people will say, you know, I don't care if you're yellow, purple, green, you know, that, and that's that colorblindness, um, you know, Brad was alluding to, but that also isn't useful because when we don't see it, it's allowed to continue to grow and entrench itself. Um, so I just want to point out, you know, that, that, that first principle is enough on its own that we can unpack. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, I was just gonna, Jeremy, were you going to say something earlier? Uh, it, it was a few layers back. I feel like maybe it wouldn't, uh, be appropriate to, to go back into that at this moment, but it loops into some of the questions we're getting on YouTube. So, um, let's keep exploring this and maybe in another 10 or 15 minutes, we can shift over to some of the YouTube questions because they're really good. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Sorry, Brad, go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I could, I could definitely keep building on what, on what Ashby's saying. Um, I just, again, I really appreciate to the acknowledgement of needing to see and acknowledge racism. Like that's definitely an important step. But also, as Ashby said, it's, it's one form of a bigger picture. And there's so many ways in which human beings are, are traumatized and cause suffering for each other and violent. And the roots of human violence are so deep. Like part of it is just this unfathomable, unbearable need to come to terms with millennia of genocide and rape and slavery and murder and war. And it's really, really important that we open ourselves up to that bigger historical context, cross-cultural cross -cultural context, prior to any sort of language games about race or racism and including that, right? And it's just another manifestation of this human drama that we're in. And, you know, uh, Another book that I'd want to recommend folks is called Healing Collective Trauma by Thomas Hubel, which actually just came out. And it's really, it's, it's a really helpful to have, um, to just have this broader context and see how really how big it is. And it's like, we really do need to open up a space to acknowledge these atrocities and then not acknowledge and not be in denial about the impacts of race and trauma and violence, but to hold everyone 
in the container of that healing process because we literally are all affected by trauma in different ways and like the the suffering of humanity is just so vast and immeasurable that we actually have to open more space to acknowledge more than just our particularized context and the thing is i think that kind of opening it's necessary if we're going to get to the end game that ashby's talking about which is bigger than racism but it's also necessary and helpful within the context of making addressing racism more effective because when you acknowledge you know like they've done studies too not only on holocaust survivors but they've done studies on the children of nazis right and like the children of nazis are also deeply traumatized people right like both the perpetrators and the victims are deeply traumatized in different ways it's not about relativizing it's not about equating it's not about denying the immense suffering of of people who are more who are more in the victim role it's i'm, I'm not trying to say oh well, white people suffer just as much as black people in america that that's not the move the move is there's nuance and complexity and depth to human suffering in every context and holding a space in our hearts that's big enough to really hold everyone will help us get through not only to the maybe like hyper aggressive like anti-racists who maybe aren't being effective partly because they're not opening space for the white nationals like how do we actually help i mean <laughs> When we have 70 million people voting for Trump, it's like something is deeply, deeply wrong in terms of how people are contracting and reacting to each other. And we have to have an orientation that's much more inclusive of the diversity of human suffering, right? Like take, take the sort of progressive postmodern values of diversity and, and inclusion to their logical conclusion and really include the diversity of all human suffering. And then in particular context, you can zero in on more the particulars of how individuals, sacred, unique individuals have experienced suffering and trauma in their context with their positionality. Um, but you have to do that literally for everyone. And you have to be willing to grant that that is necessary for everyone. And if we can't do that, we're definitely not going to be moving in the direction of that of that goal of transcending human violence and war right o overall yeah and it's 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 important what you said brad um relating is not equating um everyone suffers and everyone has been traumatized whether they know it or not by the process of racialization um, and just to add another book to people's reading list if they're interested in this topic. It's uh, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minicum, who's a, um, a licensed therapist. And it's all about racialized trauma and how to work through it as a, a, a person living in specifically the United States, but I think it could apply anywhere. And I think before we can go forward uh, effectively, we, sh we should operationalize the terms of racism, um, race, and where they come from. And so if I may, I, I would like to refer to a, a recent book by the journalist Isabel Wilkerson called Cast, The Origin of Our Discontents. It was just published um, in the summer of 2020. And it outlines how casteism is the underlying structure of what that produces the things like racism and sexism and classism. Um, and so casteism is about 
positioning and restricting other persons based off of social positions. Um, so, so ranking them, categorizing people um, in a way that says, you know, X is greater than Z or and, and putting them on top of each other, superposing them. Uh, whereas racism um, describes any action or institution that harms or attaches inferiority or stereotype on the basis of the social construct of race. And then to understand where race comes from in the modern uh, use of the term, we have to understand the, the mechanisms of capitalism, which originated in Europe, where people uh, needed to be marked as exploitable. Um, and so they, 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 they made this process of racialization. And racialization in Europe was specific to people of Roma descent and um, Irish and Jewish descent at that time, because those people were at the bottom of the, the class rung, and so they could be exploited. Once the so-called new world was encountered and uh, people could be brought to that place for very uh, cheap, well, not, it's not cheap, they were enslaved, a uh, labor, it became useful to racialize people who were black and brown, so indigenous people in the United, in North America and uh, black Africa, or people who, from Africa who became labeled as black. Um, and so that's how we came into this understanding of race, meaning white or black, and the, and the people who were it, getting the most advantage from the system raced themselves as white. And so in this process, we see that racism um, preceded the idea of race and casteism preceded the idea of racism. Yeah, super, super interesting. Um, and uh, do you want do we try some uh, questions from the from the chat? Yeah, let's do that. Um, I think they're very relevant to uh, the direction of this conversation. Uh, the first one's from Jack uh, Jack Allen asking. I've uh, been finding it more difficult to critique wokists lately. The anti-woke arguments are being used to dismiss any notion of systemic injustice particularly the IDW adjacent folks who find critical race theory to be the number one threat to the United States, almost as if they're a CRT focused single issue voter. Um, so yeah, just like talking about that, and we, this is a, a few, a few layers back, I think, in our conversation. But, you know, I've seen this conversation occur in integral circles and in the integral left. And it's this question, well, isn't CRT very, there's intersectionality, there's all of these different variables you have to think about, isn't that integral oriented? And there's this constant debate about, well, is it too identitarian? Is it too, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, those critiques are weaponized by the IDW and IDW adjacent communities, which are used to carte blanche completely dismiss systemic injustice, right? Because they, in an interesting way, by problematizing uh, CRT, et cetera, they kind of preclude any kind of possibility of actually having a discussion of what's going on systemically, right? They're not really offering an alternative, um, which is ironically the critique that they always say about, you know, leftists and progressives and the postmodern, that there's so much deconstruction, there's no more room for generality or et cetera. So an interesting lay of the land. And I think um, he's kind of sort of looking for us to kind of just explore that together. Well, sure, uh, if I may. Um, yeah. I think that reaction is 
is a product of shame. Um, so when people are um, confronted with harsh realities, one of our reactions, like one of my own reactions is to go to whataboutism. Like, so that you're looking for any flaw that will um, delegitimize or un otherwise undermine the, the concern that somebody else has brought to you. So in the case of people saying, well, wokists are too extreme and critical race theory is the greatest threat to American civilization, um, that is, that is a, a easy way to distract from the legitimate concerns of the people who are claiming that certain behaviors, worldviews, systems are actually violent. Um, and so, so the, the question is, you know, how do we, how do we acknowledge our own senses of shame and what is the role for guilt, which is different than shame, um, so we don't devolve into non-relational um, interaction. Because once shame is involved, it's almost impossible to relate in any meaningful way with anyone. You don't, we aren't listening when we are feeling shamed. We are um, negatively judging and assuming the worst about ourselves or, or maybe the other person. Um, and that has to do, again, with you know, some, something in the past, probably trauma, but it's maybe even if it's not the individual's experience with trauma, like from their, from their upbringing, it could be inherited trauma, as we see with the whole process of racialization in America. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you went there. Um, and that's, that's, that's one of the themes that Ashby and I have been unpacking together, just thinking about repentance and forgiveness and blame and shame and trauma and unpacking all that, but also in conversation with these sort of developmental, more cognitive components, which, which I tend to go to. And though we, need, we need to really bring those things in conversation together. So for instance, integrating what Ashby's talking about and I've been talking about, which is seeing everyone being, having the ability and the inclination to see everyone potentially in a context of, of suffering, of, of, of trauma, of like, like holding them with empathy. So whether it's a white nationalist or a sort of modernist like IDW person or an anti-racist or an anti-anti-racist, like they all need that holding, right? Like we're all humans, we're all suffering, we all are reactive and reacting to different things. And I'm hearing that sort of from Ashby. It's really about empathy and compassion. And that is necessary for the process of healing these, these racial issues. And then there's also the, the cognitive and complexity distinctions, which I think is important for us if we're holding an integral frame. It is an important question for us to think about, you know, what is the difference between a, a metamodern or integral anti-racism and something like the IDW or the anti-anti-racism or anti-wokeism that you see sort of propagating. Um, and I think there's some really important distinctions there, right? And, and what we don't see nearly enough of in anti-wokeism is a real steel manning of and deep understanding of critical race theory. And we don't see an acknowledgement of even in something like white fragility, there is a lot of truth there. Like there is important truth in understanding that socialization process and that that um, fragility patterns that we see in people not wanting to talk about this stuff. And, you know, I mean, these distinctions as, as they're pointed out in psychological models like integral psychology, you know, those distinctions aren't that hard to see. Like you have to be looking for, can you actually include and preserve the partial truths of the perspective that you're trying to be 
in conversation with and perhaps move beyond. So any conversation that we want to have of wokeism or anti-racism or critical race theory has to, first of all, really grok and steel man and understand and acknowledge the very important truths that they're bringing to the table. Um, but as, you know, people who are on a trajectory of ever increasing depth and breadth of understanding and self-growth and self-awareness, we don't want to stop there. And we do also need to keep our critical thinking skills and looking at the partialities of critical race theory and the tendencies, again, for reduction and the tendencies to oversimplification. So we can talk about reduction and oversimplification without negating, you know, wholesale, um, the whole sort of body of like understanding. And in order to do that, you need to have some of the qualities that Ashby's pointing to. Like you need to be able to hold people with just more empathy and more understanding and not wanting to shame or blame and just making a different kind of interpersonal relational move um, whenever it comes up. Yeah, great. Ryan, did you have a, a reflection on that before we jump to another question? Oh, sure. Yeah, that was a, that was a great question. Great responses. So thank you. Um, I mean, this is this is really a conversation I'm enjoying because I've also I think like a lot of other people in our community have been frustrated by the polarizing discourses. And it's been so it's so black and white, right? And there are no gray areas or nuances where we can kind of live and, and see what emerges from those spaces, these liminal spaces between, you know, the hyper woke and hyper anti woke IDW adjacent kind of communities. And my frustration or critique of the anti woke crowd is they're kind of falling into the same traps of the woke crowd that they're criticizing in the sense that they're only providing a deconstructive critique and and are shaming and lashing out in all the same ways that they're accusing the woke people of doing without putting forward an integrative affirmative vision that transcends and includes the best parts as you're saying about of steel manning crt or other literatures that that are popular in you know woke subcultures and trying to integrate the insights and move forward. Uh, and so I have a lot of respect for people like uh, Chloe Valderi. I don't know a lot about her theory of enchantment, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of it, but I think the general idea is to really put that vision forward that explores all of the complexities we're talking about, but it's also framed in a way that's kind of inspiring, right? It's a, it's a positive attractor that's pulling us towards a world that's good and true and beautiful, or you know, what does uh, Charles Eisenstein call it? The, the a world are more beautiful, something more beautiful than our hearts. The more beautiful is, our hearts know is possible. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a balance between finding. I mean, I mean, this from my own experience, as, as you all know, I spend, I have uh, a part of different DEI and and uh, racial justice and advocacy groups, and um, one of the things I'm kind of uh, trying to kind of you know plant the seed in in, in these communities is that it's important to face the dragon and confront our shadow and of the collective trauma and atrocities and injustices that have um, been committed throughout history and in the present day and to really have the resiliency to to stoically confront these horrible you know things and, and be able to as you're saying atone with them and um, accept what happened and, and see the impact that it had systemically and on people's individual lives and balance that out with a forward-looking vision that draws us towards something that's more inspiring and uplifting. And so we don't get burned out just digging in our shadows 24-7, focusing on all the negative things and all the ways that you could say something offensive or, or damaging to someone, right? And it's like, it's like there's all these things like white fragility, white privilege, white superiority, white silence. And what I've been trying to um, 
offer is like, well, what is the opposite virtue of those things that we should try to be cultivating as a community, right? And it's kind of like the Enneagram, like each type has a, a sin and or a, you know, a downside and there's kind of like a virtue that, that a healthy type expresses. So I'm kind of like, what are all these things we want to get away from and what are all the things we want to move towards and really paint an inspiring, beautiful image of that and cultivate those virtues in the community, right? What kind of practices do we want to do to have more cultural humility or personal humility and try to have these virtues in the social justice world and in the DEI world seep into our own personal selves. And so there is a developmentally catalyzing component in the sense that I'm trying to encourage a movement towards more complexity of understanding, right? Kind of like the whole complexity sense-making movement but also on a personal level, like developing these virtues of compassion, of patience, of kindness, understanding, multiple perspective taking and, and courage and humility and so forth, right? So that's kind of, that's kind of what I've been trying to uh, jujitsu along in some of these communities. And, and that, is, that is wonderful. And it is sorely needed um, in this, this the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I think the, uh, the gravamen of of people who feel marginalized and not acknowledged as fully human is that the the accountability element is just it's not there um, on a uh, on a social societal scale, right? So an individual cannot be accountable for racism writ large. Sure, an individual might be accountable for how race how to undo the racist learning of their own mind. But that alone won't change the entire um, world that we live in. Maybe if enough people do it, that, that might be the case. However, before we can get to what it looks like after, after uh, the accountability, the accountability has to happen. And so I think if you want a framework for, their, for a, a, a global vision of a, of a better, more equitable healing centered engagement with the world, we would have to talk about transformative justice, which is um, a movement, an, uh, a school of thought that is about changing the conditions that allow for and maybe even promote violence and oppression and domination and, and those ways of thinking. Um, if we don't do that, we, we're just going to end up in the same situation over and over again. But that first step is that that accountability and the, how accountability happens matters. It can't be an individual saying, I am going to, to, to bear the cross for everyone else's sins. Like that's not how it works. No offense to, to people who um, have a, a Christian belief. Um, what, what I think would be most effective is if the community made it possible for accountability to happen in a, in a way that does not dismiss the person who is, or the persons, the groups, that have harmed or harm, you know, the, in, in a way that, um, that allows for vulnerability. So, so vulner, you, you can't have accountability with, without vulnerability for both for the person who did the harm um, and for the person who was harmed. Like it requires, it requires this, uh, this showing of our soft side and risking something important. Um, and that also, involves humility. So I, I think that if we're talking about repairing the world, this idea of tikkun alum in Judaism, we, we have to start with accountability so we can turn away from the behavior that was harmful. 
Mm. Can I just build on that real quick? Or do we want to move on? So just just that that thought of like, yeah, you can't have accountability without vulnerability is so key. And it just makes me think, you know, you it's really hard to have vulnerability when we're essentializing group identity and in some ways um, sort of encouraging the conflation of individual accountability and like group identity, right? So it's like, I, I feel like one of the ways we have to open up the vulnerability to get to accountability is by being more careful about how we hold this tension between individual and collective. And right, and like, so part of the transcendent include movement, I think beyond wokeness is, is that when we're dealing with say white individuals, right? We have to find a way to allow white individuals to be vulnerable and acknowledge and become accountable to themselves, but not insinuating or associating or conflating somehow taking on like, I'm guilty for all people with light skin throughout history and everything they've ever done. Like that's, if, if, if it feels like I'm being asked to take that on, it's gonna be really hard for me to be vulnerable and be accountable for myself as a unique individual with my experience of trauma as a white person, right? So it's like, that's where we need help in terms of what to avoid in the anti-racist work is to be more careful about that conflation and not sort of associate people, not essentialize people as their group or as identified with their group or as guilty or, to, or, or ashamed of what people that they are raced as being associated with. Like, you know, we, we, we have to allow people to still be seen as individuals so that they can become vulnerable and therefore be held mm-hmm. accountable. I think this is a very uh, difficult context, especially in the, this is something that's come up for, for my groups in conversation, which is not only are we really hoping for the individual in question and their accountability to be vulnerable and not contracting around the question of like, I am responsible for all of the evils done on behalf of my people or my ancestors. It's quite a lot to take on. Uh, but also we have the other the other side here, which is I have, my people have recently been wounded. Like literally almost every week we have stories of, you know, police violence and institutional violence, et cetera. So the wound and the trauma is very fresh as well. And so we have this kind of irreconcilability. I'm not saying ultimately, but at, at least at the surface where one side is, is very much wounded and wanting and demanding accountability and wishing to express anger and desire for justice. And the other side doesn't want to be pinned down as the, you know, as the evil person who has to repent. So we have this kind of recoiling and anger, right? This, there's a lot of tensions here. And navigating that space, I think, is 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 really the uh, one of the most difficult questions to answer. I mean, I, I don't really know how we how we specifically can can do that, but that, that's what comes to mind as we're talking about this, right? Because if we get the perspective of the quote unquote racist in mind, but then we also have the perspective of um, those who have been hurt and are calling for justice, and the blood that has been spilled is is fresh. It's, 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 you know, literally this year, look at, look at what happened. So, um, how do we, how do we handle this? You know, like this is something perhaps as we're saying, you know, 
violence and generational trauma is something that is a deep wounding, kind of a mutual wounding. And it's, it's very difficult to ask for mediation or peace in, in these kinds of contexts and situations. So wondering about your, your thoughts on that before we jump back to other questions. Could I, could I add something to it? So, so, you know, Brad, when you say, you know, how do we do this in a way that doesn't assume the guilt of people? Um, I don't know that we can. I don't, I think we do have to assume guilt, especially when it comes to race, because as you were saying, we all actively racialize each other all the time. Like even in saying white people, we're racializing someone. Um, and that is something I think in my understanding, we have to admit to like that itself is a type of harm. Um, and if we can't recognize that what our, what we, our behavior is harmful, our racializing behavior is harmful, we can't turn away from it. Like there would be no reason to turn away from it. So, you know, while people who are considered white or white bodied are not, you know, they, they, they didn't cause what happened hundreds, literally hundreds or sometimes thousands of years ago, um, the, what we're left with, someone has to be responsible for. And I think we all are. And I think we all have different types of responsibility. And the whole idea of transformative justice is that there is a container for that responsibility where we share it. Like we allow other people, we allow the person who is, who has a, a heavier lo load of responsibility. So people who have this idea of unearned privilege, you know, that, that is a heavy load, that is a burden. It is also a burden not to have those, those privileges um, that, that is harmful. And I think that's what I mean when I say guilt, we are all guilty. We are all guilty of racism, whether like none of us were born into this world saying, oh, you know, I just wanna be racist. It's just how we were conditioned. And we need to, I think, let go of the shame associated with that. I'm not wrong because racism is part of my world, the worldview that I grew up with. Um, however, I am responsible for it. And I need to, if I want to change it. Um, and I think that contracting happens when people are loath to admit that something about their way of thinking is actually harmful and wrong. Their way of being existing in the world. They aren't wrong, but the behavior is not helpful. It is harmful. And that is true for everyone who's embedded in the racist system. And I don't think that, I think there are very few people who are actually just racist. I don't even know what that means for a person to be racist. I think people can do racist things as a product of being in a racist world, a world that is uh, formed and shaped by racism, or, uh, but I don't think there are actual racist people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, that's, that's the beautiful move, brother. That, it, that's the beautiful move is acknowledging, it's not about saying, oh, well, I'm not responsible for, you know, all Europeans, just because some of my ancestors hail from Europe. It's actually going bigger and saying like, yeah, we all are, like we are all responsible and we're all guilty. And I think that is the beautiful move that we can make that will actually help anti-racism. Because even in the way that we're thinking about it, like assuming that I, you know, don't have the capacity or would not have the inclination to connect with the suffering of a person with dark skin who's murdered by police as much as my wife who has darker skin than me, like that, that's not necessarily true. Like that, that's just us continually uh, continuing to construct 
this sort of racial frame and essentialize it and assume that my thinking and feeling would correspond to the thinking and feeling of other people who have similar phenotypes, right? And like, that's actually not a, 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 a fundamentally necessary aspect of reality. Like we actually, we can hold it all, like, and we can actually help people grow into that more world-centric space. And that's why the racist, anti-racist conversation, it really, I think it needs to be in this developmental growth-oriented trajectory of healing where we're actually we have some sense of that where we're trying to get to is like world-centric interbeing interdependence like one human family where we're actually not so caught up in oh well my like your group is demanding for racism to be you know held accountable for and my group is going to contract and react against that like we all need to hold it all like we all need to try to understand the perspective and experience of police we all need to try to try to hold and understand the perspective of people who are victims of police violence right and that like that's the growth oriented work of all of us to try to to hold both sides and not get pulled into identifying which is one or the other and i think the more we can do that and the more we can kind of make the move that ashby's speaking to in terms of in terms of it literally including all of us, then I think we can, that actually will help us be more vulnerable and have less contraction because we're not contracting around that sense of collective identity and in-group, out-group. Yeah, it's it seems like if I can paint a, an emerging picture in the conversation, it would be that um, in the context of the mutual wounding, or let's say, you know, uh, uh, an imbalance wounding, let's say of a systemic racism on a group of people, the direction towards healing is one of, of uh, self-actualization, remediation, and it's kind of orthogonal to that, that battle, right, of, okay, you need to feel guilty, and okay, you need to uh, back off a little bit, let me, you know, that kind of tension that we see in all of these discussions online, these very heated debates and discussions between, let's say, the IDW and then um, more of the progressive communities, the answer seems to be orthogonal to that oppositionalism, right? And it seems to be charged, well, let's, let's build something else together, right? It's, let's move into spaces and dialogues or act collective activities um, that, that uh, enable us to work that out in a way that we can't work out by just going back and forth like, like we have been doing. Um, so I'm very much, I, I appreciate this conversation in the sense of how clearly it's, it's, it's um, uh, providing us a kind of shape of like, where do we need to go? From here because mm -hmm. it seems like we're sort of in the trenches culturally speaking mimetically speaking in a sort of landlocked back and forth with each other and i think the answer is well it has to be orthogonal to that and yeah. let's explore what that is on the ground materially practically through our experience yeah. in our particular fields um so just yeah. to say i appreciate yeah I have, I have just one thing to add to that jeremy if i can because i love that i do think though I think we can see it dialectically still like we because there are these meaningful differences between a meta modern integral anti racism and like postmodern anti racism versus like IDW modernist anti racism right versus like traditional racism potentially so like I think there is a dialectical transcend and include movement that we can make, but I also think we can see it the way you're saying, seeing it as orthogonal seeing as it like it's time to step sideways into the light, you know it's time to actually 
embrace just some 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 version of love and like actually get away from all the different language games and cognition games and frames and actually just make that sideways move of like it's actually simple it's actually simplicity on the other side of complexity in a way too because we're talking about very simple fundamental human qualities of love and empathy and forgiveness and care and relationality and mutuality and equality and somehow those basic simple all important things can get lost sight of in the kinds of elaborate language games that we play around around this topic so that sideways move is is, is a beautiful one but it is still also beautifully and paradoxically there is still a dialectical and growth oriented nature to it i i think and you know one of the one of the big debates out there is sh should the end goal should what we should be moving towards is color blindness or color consciousness right and that's kind of the debates that you know someone like um thomas chatterton williams who's who has a book on unlearning race uh talks about on twitter and of course what i was talking about on the email with everyone was my idea of like color transparency or race transparency or for a Gebserian take it'd be like race diaphaneity where we can see through you know seeing through the world maybe my book is going to be called seeing through race right it's like you can see through the construct but still acknowledge that it, it it is a construct but it has some gravity to it it has some meat to it due to all of the historical and sociological and political forces that make it so but you're not getting fixated on that kind of superficial essentialism you're seeing through that to the deeper qualities of the individual and also taking into consideration all of these systemic and historical factors that surround and shape and mold individual perspectives and and you know one of the things i'm trying to break down is the is the idea that's partly true and also partly not true that the the green or activist crowd is only interested in external change and and you know like Warbro talks about like the conservatives are the upper left and the progressives are the lower right quadrant systems change oriented outward looking individuals and my kind of position on this is that really studying these things really understanding um, race identity and, and the socially constructed nature of reality and of our own selves is a kind of psychotechnology that has developmental and transformative implications. Um, and I call it decentering psychotechnologies, right? And also like a post-colonialism or de decolonization, there is a decentering element where our own worldview is deeply challenged and recontextualized and we're able to take other perspectives, other vantage points and just have a more complex holistic view of the full ecology of diverse lived experiences that we're feeling into, and and um, so yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to frame it not only as I need to learn all of the ins and outs of outs of anti-racism or DEI in order to prevent people from being harmed, but in doing so, I'm transformed as an individual, not only in being a better ally to oppressed people, but just developmentally and spiritually the very structure of my character and cognition is transformed so that that will have positive ramifications in all of civil society beyond race, right? It's, it's one portal or pathway to a truly integral or metamodern world. And if we're going to talk and spend so much time talking about race these days, we might as well try to sense make around it in a way that is catalyzing of transformation. So that's, that's kind of my, mm -hmm. what I've been trying to do. <laughs> I think that's awesome. And that's, that's a beautiful way of framing this sort of dialectical nature of the way I see it. It's sort of the transcendent include beyond the binaries. And then also the sort of psychoactive element of moving through that as an individual. 
Yeah, I think that is actually a, a remedy of sorts to the harm and the injury caused by racialization. Like you can, by recognizing what race is, um, seeing it, seeing through it, and the things that informed it, um, without letting go of, like you said, the gravity of it. Like it still, it still has meaning. Just like money is not real, <laughs> it, it it has meaning. Um, and race, while not something tangible at all has profound effects. Some of them are actually good and because they, they, they produce resiliency. But what I am most interested in, and I think that's what you're getting at, Ryan, is uh, moving from res just resiliency and, and against fragility to anti-fragility, uh, which is an idea that includes you know, being resilient, but also having all the stress and uh, uh, adversity make you better off afterwards. So you're not just bouncing back, you're bouncing back and you're better than ever. And I think we need to do that, have built that um, capacity and learn how to build that capacity as individuals and also as a society, especially in a society that purports to be a democracy. Well said, well said. Uh, th there's a couple of questions, comments that we're getting. Um, this one's a little a little adjacent to what we've been talking about, but it, but it's it's used a bit in the in the argumentative space. Um, but Dylan was asking. Um, I've heard that the Frankfurt School, which, which allegedly developed CRT, is of Marxist thought, and I thought Marxism and postmodernism were incompatible. So, is this where they intersect? Um, and just just my comment here about Marxism and postmodern. Uh, I, I think a lot of these have been very generalized. Um, again, essentialized sort of narratives about um, the post-war, uh, post-war kind of French thought after World War II that became increasingly postmodern. Um, and yes, there was sort of the economic left, and then you started started to get a kind of analysis of power and the movement into more of the uh, identity-oriented. Uh, progressive cultural left that happened in the 1980s. So I don't know if that's a direct answer. I don't know if 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 you want to want to tackle that question. Anybody here? Uh, it's a, it's a it's a can of worms, but um, yeah. it's something that I have a there. meta comment on that, which is just yeah, like a lot. That, that, so those words denote sort of hyper objects at this point. Like there's just there's these words that are used a lot, like postmodernism, Marxism, you know, Frankfurt School, CRT. And part of the issue we're facing here, and this is actually another really important tangent, which is talking about just our um, informational ecology and the media ecology and the Twitter sphere and the way that people are getting information nowadays. Like, are people actually reading Adorno and Horkheimer and Habermas to understand the Frankfurt School, or are they listening to a Jordan Peterson lecture? You know, and it's like, like. We, 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 there's a lot of downward assimilation happening and also there's a lot of reductionism happening and it's it's just really hard to hold and steel man and embrace and really do justice to any of those categories that were mentioned um, in a short amount of time in conversation with each other you know and it's just like we're getting really reduced and oversimplified versions of these things um, so it's, it's, it's just hard to know where to begin, but I think it's one thing to just watch out for is, you know, one thing that's happening in the mimetic sort of culture of conflict, um, largely online is sort of, a, 
antagonistic and strategically framed uses of some of these concepts and words um, in, in, in ways that's not really furthering a deep understanding of what those things refer to. And that's also not furthering the improved relationship between the people who are engaging in that in that interaction, right? So, so just to take a broader theme that we've been talking about, which is healing and empathy and embodied connection, like I think that is also relevant just to discourse in general and really seeking understanding and, and going to primary sources and really reading about these things and not just the more current um, summaries of them. So that, I mean, that, that's just sort of a meta point of like, it, it's, just, it's just really hard to, to thoughtfully and adequately address those, those conflicts. I'd say you, you really have to go back and, and study them, look at specialists in each of those fields and see what those specialists have to say, and then try to create a high order integration of some of those concepts, having been informed by people who've actually gone deep into them individually. Um, and that's just a sort of meta skill and capacity that we have to develop as people trying to navigate our sort of informational warfare in the 21st century um, and to not fall into sort of antagonistic and strategic um, and unproductive conversations around those big topics. Yeah, yeah, well, well articulated there. And I think it always comes down to where we began actually at the beginning of this conversation with with developing the capacity for fluidic and complex thinking, right? empathy taking uh, that really requires that sort of on the ground work of really working with human beings in, in on a one-to-one -one basis or in terms of in the context of communities where all of those complexities are at work and i think our dynamic intelligence is, is in a much better space rather than kind of online looking at all of these different you know mimetic spheres debating with each other we see them all in the process of interrelationship in a human being, right? Or in a living community. And I think that is such a, an important part. And it's why we call this podcast growing down, right? Because mm -hmm. there's such a need for connecting at that empathetic personal level to actually work with complexity, quote unquote, higher level cognitive complexity. It's like, we have to be here mm -hmm. doing it. And we're at, we're in a better situation to actually realize it in a healthy way, doing it this way. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, let's see if there's any other questions. I think I think that's it from from the chat. Just some interesting comments, like uh, Nate was recommending Cornell West. Race matters. It isn't the end all be all, but it's good. Uh, mm -hmm. Saying afternoon. Um, let's see if there's anything anything worth kind of digging in right now. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, critical race theory is bourgeois. IDW are right for the wrong reasons. I, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into that. I know that's like the the Adolf Reed kind of critique as well, though he's got a much more nuanced one about that. But again, like if we're talking about, you know, on the ground living communities, having this sort of meta integral approach to this, then we are, we have to factor in the economic, the caste, as we've been, as we've been saying, the lived experience, etc. And so I don't know that that's my response, like, let's be let's be flexible and complex and thinking about this and obviously not reject or to, in a totalizing way, accept CRT or, or the opposite, etc. Like, as we've been saying, like, maybe as a sort of meta question at the end, like, how do we 
like what would we recommend as like practices to help that kind of thinking really kind of come online for us who are in, engaged in sense-making communities, the integral communities, metamodern. I mean, what can we really do to really kind of help facilitate that style of thinking in our own engagement? What well, what uh what style of thinking were you referring to? What what were you talking about or complex thinking as we've yeah. integrative complex thinking, right? Um being able to take multiple positions think about the, uh, the sort of inter dynamic living interrelationships of things, right? And all these different systems. We're, we've been talking about the need for that context to hold these questions. So, so what can we do? What can listeners do to really train and practice and really promote that style of thinking in themselves in their own life? Yeah, well, I, I, I could take a stab at it and then I'm, I'm sure Ashby might have some recs too, but I would say, so two things jump out. One is just personal inner work. And then the other is what content you're exposing yourself to and being really thoughtful about getting pulled into um, information like bubbles and tunnels and being really limited in what you're exposing yourself to. So some of the names that I've mentioned, and I'll, na I'll name them again in terms of, you know, voices who are speaking to these things in um, unconventional ways, but that are still anti-racist, people like... I Aisha Kanbi, um, Greg Thomas, we mentioned Chloe Valdery. There's also, I want to give a plug in for just a more like academic approach, like even people like Daniel Allen um, and Kwame Anthony Apia, Bayo Akomalafi, um, Bell Hooks, people mentioned Cornell West. Like there's so many important voices out there um, that are that are really important. And, and I actually think people like Thomas Chatterton Williams and Coleman Hughes, who are kind of holding down like um, maybe a more sort of modernist view, but actually it's still really important because it's it's not racist. It is still anti-racist, but it's not the conventional dominant popular anti-racism. So I think the more voices that we can include, again, in the name of, in, of, of inclusion and diversity, um, seek out different perspectives and see if you can in yourself create a higher order integration of these different truths and be exposing yourself to different perspectives and different truths, and then synthesizing them in your own unique integration and synthesis is the activity of complex thinking. So that's actually the practice we need to be engaging in, um, not just taking things at face value, catching when you're engaging in, like I said, just strategic sort of manipulative communication, whether it's online or whatever, like don't be trying to always prove a point or prove somebody wrong or critique, like watch out for the tendency to just critique and deconstruct, right? So much of our communication is pulled in to this sort of postmodern milieu of deconstruction and criticism. Um, and we're not actually incentivized to slow down and create higher order syntheses and integrations of coherent um, worlds of understanding that actually um, cohere and can instill sort of positive purpose in our lives where we have a sort of directionality or a, um, an attractor point that we're sort of going to. So look for people who are actually pulling you towards something that is purposeful and meaningful and positive and inclusive and not critical and deconstructive and antagonistic and strategic, right? So these are the kinds of distinctions that we have to make. And on personal work, I just put a plug in basically Look, it's 2020, things are getting really intense. Every single human being actually has to learn 
how to close their computer and turn off their phone and sit and meditate. Like, it's just, it, it, it's becoming like, you know, I, I love how Hansi Freinach said, like what reading and literacy was to modernity, meditation is to meta-modernity, right? Like all, like we want literacy to be universal. We want everyone to be able to read um, and not just reading Twitter and Facebook, but actually still reading books. We also want every human being now to get to the point where self-inquiry and self-reflection and meditation are practices that are just as normal as reading are because it takes practice and it we we have to we have to encourage our, our growth our 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 overall growth and it's not just through um regurgitating content but it's actually through distilling and digesting and being with our inner experience more fully and deeply that we can develop those capacities yeah thank you brad i I couldn't agree more with your recommendations. And I also want to, to, to say that we won't get through this unless we understand ourselves and understand how to be in right relationship with other people. Healing happens in relationship, whether it be within inner relationship with ourselves, if, if there's inner healing that has to happen or healing with other people. Um, and I, I think people who have adopted the integral theory worldview um, with its four quadrants, um, they might excel quite, you know, exceptionally well at some of them, but I think there isn't enough actually done in the joining of some of these quadrants, uh, specifically the, the subjective and the intersubjective and the, and the interobjective quadrants. So to do that, I think it is a, um, a good idea to keep in mind and be sensitive to what about those we perceive as others um, Make, makes us defensive, uh, brings up feelings of shame, um, rage, sadness. Be sensitive to that and get curious about it because there's a reason that that's happening and we won't be able to um, transform that hurt into growth unless we acknowledge the things that have, have, have the ways of thinking that have allowed those feelings to, to come into fruition. Um, and as it relates to racism, like we all have feelings about racism and racist behaviors, whether we admit it or not, whether we think we are colorblind or not. Um, and I think it is an important to, to keep in mind that outcome, that, that world system, worldview, that social imaginary that we want to achieve and acknowledge that we may not actually live to, to see it, but we can you know, catalyze change within ourselves. And once we do that, as Ryan was saying earlier, that, that, that change of our own perspectives actually is spiritually, intellectually, and socially transformative, even if it's on a small scale. Um, so if you're interested in transformative justice, I couldn't recommend Marme Kaba highly enough. She is outstanding and writes eloquently about transformative justice. Um, and if you learn uh, your link is, is more through hearing in podcasts. There's a podcast called Rerooted, um, produced by Francesca Maxime, who is a therapist and meditation teacher in New York City. And it goes very deeply into the type of emotional and social work that we have to do to cultivate healing relationships. Mm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, Wonder, wonderful, wonderful answers here. I'm kind of like brewing in this 
uh, whatever is emerging here. Um, just a couple of final thoughts to, to your last query, Jeremy. You know, I think going back for a second to the whole Marxism, postmodernism, um, critical theory thing, I'm not well studied in, in any of those. I'm by no means a philosophy scholar or historian or anything, but from the, from the amount of studying I have done, my general take is the one thing they all have in common is this game of putting the background into the foreground, right? You're lighting up the context and the environment that we've, that we're swimming in and we're wet with. So we're not necessarily aware of how much it's influenced us, right? And just doing that, whether it's critiquing the structure of capitalism, whether it's more of like a Freudian critique of the role of sexuality playing a role in things that we don't think it normally does at first glance or the political system and how that you know, how history or, or language or, right, how these things influence us that we are not really aware of. And in doing so, in, in becoming mindful of those systemic and structural impacts, we're not only able to have a more complex understanding of the wholeness of reality, but we're able to actually deconstruct our own identity and our own ego at a deeper level, because our, I think our own subjective identities get snagged on to different systemic signifiers and objects. And unless we can see those, we can't be truly spiritually liberated. And I don't think that, you know how Ken Wilber says, you can meditate in your cave for all eternity uh, and never see developmental stages, right? Because that's a zone two versus a zone one. You can see your thoughts, you can see your feelings, you can see sensations in my right toe, for example, but I can't see the cognitive structure that I'm currently operating at. I think it's the same way to degree with influences of class, culture, history, and so forth. Those are invisible to me phenomenologically, but it through studying these things and introspecting on myself, I can start seeing that the visual come alive, right? I can start seeing how I'm infinitely divisible into all these parts that have, uh, you know, all these confluences of forces that have molded me. And in doing so, you can also deconstruct your own uh, ego and, and, and do it in, uh, it's like how Jordan Peterson has that, um, a video on marionettes and he talks about how you have you're you're cutting the strings and, and individuating becoming liberated and i say you can't cut the strings unless you first see the strings and i think postmodernisms you know critical theory structural critiques are all about being able to see the strings so that you can cut them and liberate yourself so that's kind of my trying to bridge those yeah. two worlds together well put i think thank you for that brian i i, I also want to add it's just not about liberating ourselves, it's also about collective liberation. And of course, you know, so if we focus too much about, you know, our, our personal liber liberation, it's easy to forget that all of our liberation is intertwined. Um, and we need to work towards that. Like, that, that's, that's why personal accountability won't cure racism. It requires collective accountability. Said, it's a very McLuhan attitude just in terms of electronic culture it's getting the surround is taking as you said the background and moving it to the foreground that's a very kind of style of thinking of electronic culture it's media ecological um, and that should appeal to all of us i mean especially in the integral and metamodern circles but um yeah just on that last point i guess before we wrap up uh that again is either the the the, the synthesis the dialectic the orthogonal in the terms of what is the collective shared space we wish to make, right? Like, what is the world we wish to fashion together, right? A world in which we can heal, a world in which our material conditions are addressed, in which inequities and inequalities are, are massaged out or um, 
de de-escalated you know what can we do together to build this kind of world and that's the kind of constructive question that i think we need in terms of you know really giving a um creating an attractor for for progressives in the left that is sort of mediational right because when we do that i think i think it's easier to address uh ancestral trauma it's easier to address you know um uh, you know institutional racism etc when we're working collectively to kind of go like hey in the intersubjective space, we're building something, right? So it's lower left, it's the lower right, it's also the upper left, and it's also the upper right. It's it's bringing the, all, all the quadrants together in a praxis. And I think we've been kind of exploring that and circling around that uh, for this for this session. So yeah, this re really appreciate all three of you, and this has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank you. I love you all so much. Really, thank you. It's been really great. Ashby, thank you brother, for your just being with me on this journey of friendship and inquiry. I really appreciate it. Oh, yes, this has been lovely, delightful. Thanks for having us again. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, everyone. <laughs> Great. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We